This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dean Clark and also Hugh Syme. Today's guest on the Music Buzz Podcast has over three decades of experience. It's A.J. Croce. He's established himself with reputation as a piano player and serious vocal stylist who pulls from a host of musical traditions and anti-heroes. Part New Orleans, part juke joint. Part soul, he handles lead, vocals, and a rollicking piano with irresistible, loose, and easy style. Be sure to check out his 2021 album, By Request, and also 2017's Just Like Medicine. We'll talk about both. And also recent tunes, So Much Fun, for a taste of his amazing songs. Furthermore, AJ is also the son of the late, great Jim Croce, which we'll dive into that as well. But welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, AJ Croce. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, man, it's really an honor to talk to you today, AJ. Your latest single, So Much Fun, is so much fun. But let's come back to that in a, in a moment. I wanted to start by talking about your 2017 record, Just Like Medicine, produced by the legendary Dan Penn, I might add. And I believe I read that you had wanted to make a, a quote-unquote real soul album, not a throwback 60s thing. And man, did you ever succeed. This is a great record. Just starting at the top, got to get out of my head. That could be a great lost Leon Russell song or something, man. I love those dark kind of voodoo-y verses and the poppier chorus you go into, the juxtaposition of that. Great production. Really great. The second tune, I, The Heart That Makes You, what is the full title of the second song? The Heart That Makes Me Whole is something I wrote with Leon. The first thing I thought was Mad Dogs and the Englishman. What a great song, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, Leon and I wrote a bunch together. Um, you know, we I'd opened up for him in the 90s at festivals and, and, you know, venues and whatnot. But I always came on before him. I didn't know if he ever saw me play. And then... About 20 some years ago, about 20 years ago now, I went to see him and uh, Willie Nelson do this duo show, which was the best show I ever saw either of them do. And I had played with with Willie. I'd played keys and you know stuff with him on stage before. And, and so I went back and said hello. And it was just the three of us on Willie's bus, which was rare because usually there's so many folks around. 
in this case, we just started talking about music and Leon and I really connected, not on so much, you know, his stuff, which I love, but it wasn't my influence. His influences were my influences, uh, similar to my father in a way, you know, Ray Charles was my gateway drug, you know, and it was, um, but we went back from there. I hear Alan Toussaint and Dr. John big time in your playing. Yeah, Dr. John, for some reason, you know, his bass player, David Berard, who played with him for 40 years, has been with me for about seven years now um, out of New Orleans. But curiously, I never uh, listened to Dr. John. I listened to a lot of Alan Toussaint. I listened to, you know, all the Lee Dorsey and Irma Thomas stuff he did. And, uh, of course, the meter stuff. But I listen to Professor Longhair and Fats Domino. Again, the older generation, um, James Booker. Um, and um, somehow missed Dr. John, you know? I mean, of course, I fell in love with it. Once Once my first album came out, someone said, oh, it reminds me of Dr. John. I'm like, I got to hear him. I knew right place, wrong time and that stuff. But but I didn't I didn't know how how great he was, you know? And I think Toussaint and, and Art Neville were playing on on those big cuts anyway. So it's it's um, curious. Uh, anyway, Leon and I connected on all these old piano players, uh, Little Brother Montgomery, and going back further to, to Fats Waller, James P. Johnson, Willie Lyon, then the the boogie guys like uh, Albert Ammons and Mead Lux Lewis and and um, Pete Johnson, and then Johnny Johnson and and Little Richard and Fats Domino. All these players we had this love for um ellington and basie and and all that and so um and felonious monk of course but ray charles was the first connection and we both had that and he, i got a call a few months later and he asked if i wanted to write and we just started writing uh from a distance even when we lived in the same city here in nashville well when i listened to you and watched you this morning on nothing from nothing I confess to having always thought that you were a chip off the obvious block, which would be your dad, and that you were more of a folk musician. And was I ever blown away your chops on piano? I mean, despite the fact that Alan and Mac Rebinek and all those people are in your, your circle of people, you are remarkable. Your technique is amazing. Did you study? I lost my sight when I was four. So I grew up listening to records, my dad's records. Um, I would put all the good stuff over on the left side when I came across it. And, I, and he had tons of great records. And you really can hear the R&B influence in his a lot of his recordings. Uh, Don't Mess Around with Jim is is a lot like uh, it's it's like a Lieber and Stoller song, but it's also like Jimmy Reed. When I listen to your body of work and your performances, I mean, you're you're quite the chameleon. I mean, you really adapt to songs and you make songs. I mean, Sail on Sailor, give me a break. That version is beautiful. Thank you. Unexpected, but brilliant, a brilliant uh version i'm a big beach boy fan so i was all set to be bathed in vocals and there you are you know, digressing from that norm and the way that you started that track out was very unexpected because i was just listening through and i wasn't even sure what it was for a second and that's my favorite you know that's the last great brian wilson song so i know the song well but then i got it about three lines and i said wait a second so, yeah, touche, man. Well, thank you so much, you guys. But I imagine that being like, I was trying to think if if uh, Chess Records had a psychedelic period, what it would sound like. And that's how I produced it, you know, and arranged it. it was, 
And so, you know, we've got like, I'm playing harmonium on an overdub while there's a bass harmonica playing and it's just, they're kind of stereo on either side. It, it, it was fun to do. And, and some of the songs on that album, I played, you know, very similar to the original because it was all about these requests, you know, from friends. That's how the whole album started. It was friends requesting. I love entertaining. I would have friends come over and they would, um, you know, undoubtedly at one point or another, they'd say, hey, do you know this song? Some, a lot of musicians, some not, but they would go, uh, like with the Randy Newman song that I, that's on that album, uh, a friend of mine came over and said, hey, do you know that this Flaming Groovies tune? And I said, well, that's, that's Randy Newman. But so I tried to, in that case, pay a little tribute to uh, Flaming Groovies, a tip of the hat to Randy Newman, but also imagine what it would have been like if Little Richard played with the Flaming Groovies. And that's how it was approached, you know? You're the only guy, other guy other than myself that's ever mentioned the band Flaming Groovies. <laughs> that's a great record, the Teenage Head record. That's always been yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah. The arrangements, I mean, you obviously surround yourself with some of the best. I mean, when you visualize a song and you work it up yourself, are you kind of OCD, uh, very hands-on in terms of arrangement, or do you let all the... Oh, yeah. You pre-draft how you want it to sound. I do. I'm, I always stay open to... to um deviations from it because that's where magic happens as you guys know it's the it's the unexpected um it's the mistake that becomes precious you know um not the preciousness you know i i think um i i think i really started thinking about arrangement when i was about 13 and and really um just fell in love with tucson stuff uh long before i worked with him or played with them or any of that stuff it was it was one of those things where i heard this irma thomas song and i needed to know who was playing piano who was who arranged it who you know produced this how did how does music sound this amazing and and it all came back to alan Toussaint. and so he was a same thing you know with ray charles listening to those arrangements growing up they were, you know, they were big band arrangements, but they were, there was something gospel, there was something soulful about it. It was, you know, um, sophisticated, but there was a, there was a sort of melodic dissonance in it that I just embraced. You found your way to all of those. I mean, there's a lot of sophistication to your music and your your chord structures and so on, apart from being a, obviously a, an avid listener to and arrangements did you study piano did you get your chops through rudiments or did you just like i said i couldn't i i couldn't see well enough to read um but i could write my own charts and make them big enough and um and i studied i studied obviously my scales i studied jazz you know um with different different musicians uh daniel jackson was uh was someone i studied with he was um living in san diego where i lived um at the time he had played with all kinds of folks jimmy smith great saxophone player and composer and really uh composed in a very Ellingtonian style um with the with the ear to you know hard bop as well but it was it was this kind of thing that i want he had you know been ray charles band um, leader for a period of time in the 60s and so 
grew grew from that stuff. Um, different players, sax players, guitar players taught me, drummers taught me. Everyone that you play with teaches you. And then you know, I grew up listening. So the Fats Waller stuff was hard. Uh, I my hands aren't as big as Fats Waller's, so I couldn't reach those thirteenths like just like bam, you know. But um, but by listening to um, Mississippi John Hurt, which allowed me to, I can cover that with one hand. I figured out how stride worked little brother montgomery very simplified version of stride uh more blues but i got the idea um and and it was through different people that i i learned how to do that that more complicated stuff your ear towards production and just how things should sound you have certainly surrounded yourself with some notables. I'm looking at the laundry list. In the short time we worked together, Mitchell taught me something that I had never known in all the records and a totally different perspective. Usually I think of taking these vintage instruments um, that I that I love, miking them well and recording them. His idea is that that beautiful old instruments have an innate sound that is going to be there no matter what. Let's make it sound like it's never sounded before. And it was a completely different approach, and I loved it. And it really turned my ear, and you know, that was probably five or six years ago, maybe more, to a different way of thinking about recording um, acoustic instruments. Which you have a plethora of on your wall back there that I can see. <laughs> Some beautiful vintage guitars, it looks like there. Yeah, there's guitars all over. Or right on piano, or where do you tend to start? Both. You know, I know so many more of my options with with piano than I do with guitar, but that's also a good thing uh, as as a songwriter because with guitar, my, I have a lot more limitations. You know, I picked it up in my thirties, so it was. Um, it's. I, I love the instrument, but I don't own it yet. With the piano, I feel like I own it and I know my a lot of my options. Um, and I learn something new every day. But it, that being said, going to guitar, simplifying things is a really good, it's a really good thing. I find with other piano players I talk to, myself included, though, um, you know, my chops might approach Eltonian kind of range, but nothing like Alan or, or Mac and those guys. Um, but when you write on piano, do you find that it's you get into not so much the habit, but the tendency is to write a piano song when you're writing on piano? Do you think outside that box while you're writing on piano, so you're already anticipating that you won't necessarily use the piano in the song, or does that piano drive the song as you write it? It depends on the groove. It depends on the on the changes. It depends on the lyrics. Um, I just got this amazing new instrument. It's a it's a, really a Fender Rhodes, but it is made by a company called Vintage Vibe, and they've been—they were like the repair guys for Rhodes and Whirlies and Clabs for 25 years, and had the factory full of like new old stock parts. And then this stuff ran out, and they started manufacturing one piece at a time. Eventually, they had enough uh, enough stuff to make their own instrument, and it's wonderful. And so, there's been some stuff that I've written at, at the piano lately. And then I go into the other room and I'm and I put it on, I play it there, and I'm like, that's where I hear it. There's other things, you know, you you play melodies and you think about it being a different instrument all the time. Um, I'm I'm as someone that's an avid listener, 
to other music, all different kinds of world music and just everything that I can, I find that with, um, uh, with a melody, you, you often, I often second guess myself. I go, well, I heard that here and I heard that here. And, and there's not a song I listen to by someone else where I don't recognize some of the roots of it, even if it's not, not intentional, but I sort of catch myself all the time and go, how do I make that a little different? Or how do I alter that and make it unique? You know? Well, like I said in the earlier part of this this conversation, you are like a chameleon, um, both arrangementally and vocally. You you go from the tender to the screaming. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as I scream, it's it gets it gets uh, a bit raspy, and it's just the nature of my voice, you know. To Hugh's point about being a chameleon, and that definitely stuck out to me as well. And I know you've done about 10 albums now, and it's a mix, you know, blues, soul, pop, jazz, rock, you name it. So when you're going into a new record, are you thinking like, hey, I want to make a jazz record. Oh, I want to make a rock record. And that's kind of where you jump off from, or does that just kind of come organically? It depends on the songs. It depend- I think it's the collection of songs really speak to it. Like in in the case of, um, what I have right now, because there's so much from from the lockdown period through through now that I haven't recorded even before then um, that I, you know, I already had um, by request done when when lockdown happened. So it was uh, just released a year later. So I have all this original stuff, which stuff fits together and is really sort of a concise concept. Uh, what's the best idea for this? The other factor is the, is the label, you know, uh, just depending on, on what they might be looking for as far as what they think might be good for, for, uh, for a project, you know, the, the label suggested, um, doing a cover album, which I hadn't really, I'd never done that. hadn't thought of it. I said, well, let's see what we can come up with. And, and it was really about the theme of, of, of entertaining and with different friends and memorable evenings. So if Metal Blade comes calling, you're going to be ready to make a metal record, right? <laughs> I'm not against it. Well, I'd say I really got suckered in by uh, two beautiful kind of jazz torch songs on Just Like Medicine. We almost sound like a male Billie Holiday or something. She was such an influence. Move on and uh, I couldn't stop, man. Those are really great. Thank you. Uh, John Simon arranged uh, Move On. Um, We had worked together on my first album and have remained friends. And um, he did the first band record, right? First two band records, first two uh, Taj Mahal records, um, the Janis Joplin records. and. Mrs. Robinson, a ton of just all different kinds of music, but he is just a wonderful arranger and and such a talented person. And I knew that he would hear how how to create a, a really interesting uh, arrangement for it. You were talking about uh, Alan Toussaint, uh, his arranging and his horn arranging reminds me of, of the Rock of Ages record that he did all the horns for the band. I don't know if that was a, a big one for you, but that's a that's a classic for me. You know, the first the first two are the big ones for me. You know, um, there's individual songs on other albums I love, but like those first two, Big Pink and the band, I just always loved that. And I thought that 
genre wise, they really straddled a lot of stuff. They weren't easy to categorize. And that that's something, you know, that's I've always wanted in my music, but also that I recognize um, has probably helped me back in a lot of ways, too, because had I continued on in the first couple records as being sort of jazz R&B-ish artist, um, I could have probably done pretty well, you know, um, just sticking to that. But I get bored playing one genre of things. I like it. I like having all different uh, colors in the in the palette, you know. Well, we're glad you do follow your muse, man, because how, how well put, considering we use the term chameleon. It's true about you, though. I mean, you have that you have that capacity to shape shift. I just think it's it, it is following the muse and it is um, doing what feels right for the song, you know, and, and that's really the bottom line is what and, and it, on a different day, it might might have been completely different, you know, Um I think that's one of the beauties of playing live um, is that, which I, I grew up doing since I was a kid, since I was in my early teens. And I just feel like, um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the money. It was the chance to be able to take an idea that you had already sort of thought you had, um, really a clear picture on a concept arrangement wise lyrically or um, rhythmically and and just kind of alter it some things most songs take about six months I try and throw new ones into the set and work on them let them just sit there see if they're how the audience reacts and then by the time I know if it's really solid then I feel like the band has it or I have it in my head what's working what's not do you ever do that before do you take songs out before you record them to kind of work out how they're going to work out in the studio always i've seen the album recorded too prematurely and then when you hear it a year later the live performance is often so much better and more fleshed out you know you've all seen that it's curious because there are exceptions to that rule there's you know going in like like Ray Charles and Betty Carter, I, I worked with an engineer named Al Schmidt, who I'm sure you guys have, have known over the years. Um, and he he was the engineer on a lot of these Ray Charles records. And he said, um, he said it was done in six hours, showed me how it was mic'd and how it, how it was done. But it, it was done in six hours and it was possible because there was a really clear picture of what the arrangement was. Um, and so there are, there are ways to make, um, a, an instantaneous decision or a thoughtful decision beforehand. The organization has to be there. I know your relationship to your dad's songs changed, um, when about 15 years ago or so, and obviously led up to the Croce, plays Croce thing that you're doing now. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that time period and also what's brought you up to doing what you're doing now with that? You know, I've probably been asked you know a thousand times if i would be into playing or recording his music and when i was looking for a record deal there was some really amazing financial opportunities but i just didn't feel like there was any integrity in it and i love his songs um but i was a piano player um and i didn't feel like i was going to be able to do them any justice um so from a just a cover 
band perspective of it, I wasn't going to be able to add something that wasn't better already, in my opinion. And then um, as time went on, um, you know, there were times I regretted it because I went my own way and, and that can be really expensive and, you know, not everyone digs that. <laughs> so, um, um, but, but nevertheless, um, in my early thirties, I was, um, you know, I've been working behind the scenes for years with, with my father's catalog and, and really preserving the legacy of it as a publisher. So when I was, uh, in my early thirties, I was transferring, um, some of these, um, some of these tapes over to digital. And I heard this, uh, recording of his because you know he had an 18 month career really before then he played covers he would throw one of his own songs into the set um but there was this one one collection of songs on a on a woolen sack tape and it they were the exact songs that i had played since i was 12 uh, um old old Western swing stuff like um, Hank Thompson and there was um, Bessie Smith and there was a Fats Waller and there was a Jimmy Rogers song and there was a Pink Anderson song and a Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. And there was all of these songs I had played and they were the beast, the deep cuts, the oddball songs. Like how did I choose these exact songs to, to perform? And it gave me chills. And I said, I realized that I had more in common with him from a, uh, where his influences came from and his taste in music than I had ever imagined. Even though I, you know, grown up listening to his records, um, it was still choosing those songs. It was, you know, thousand records. How do you pick those exact oddball deep cuts from, um, you know, obscure musicians. And I realized we had this connection. So a few years after that, it was, would have been his 70th birthday. And I decided to do a little tribute to him and, and incorporate some of the influences, some of the songs that you could tell influenced his stuff. So some Libra installers, some, uh, some Jimmy Reed, some Sam Cooke. And I realized that this combination of music was, um, was really very natural, but I felt like I needed to um, put a bit more of myself in there. And that's really how the whole concept started about five years ago was to, um, was to play um, his music, to play my music, and to play the music that really connects us. And it's all about that connection. And so it's interesting in that what I thought was just about his legacy became about two generations of this similar legacy. And it's, it's uh, fascinating what I thought would have been um, when I, when I started playing some of his music, especially on guitar and I, and, and then would move to the piano. I saw that the audience um, all of a sudden understood something that I didn't think they would. I didn't think they would see something uniquely different. And I didn't think they would see where the similarities, where we connected and where, you know, where we went in different directions. And so 
it was rewarding in a way that I didn't expect. And it also gave me a way to, to, um, you know, continue on this sort of legacy of, of, of writing and embracing all kinds of music and sharing it with, with an audience. I think that as a kid listening to your father's archive of music, a lot more of that rubs off than we, than we realize. There's a lot of osmosis in play, apart from the possible genetic. You know, Leroy Brown, Leroy Brown was, you know, obviously that was a piano-led song, but it felt, it, al- it always bothered me that the piano felt too stiff it didn't it didn't feel right to me you know because that was something i did i understood that so when i play it live it, it it's just a hair more laid back it's a little more in the pocket than than this kind of rigid uh, vanilla version of boogie woogie and um and and so there's little things that i do to make his stuff mine and in a song like car wash blues i play it like it's a new orleans song you know, um, because it has a lot of those R&B influences that you hear, you know, um, my dad loved Alan Toussaint um, and um, my parents sang, you know, his stuff when they were in the 60s, you know, and when they were performing together. So that stuff was in there and there's no doubt that I heard it and was influenced by it. You made a poignant comment about the one song that your dad wrote for you, Time in a Bottle. I just caught a piece of, of an interview this morning, and you said something that was pretty obvious but pretty profound, and that is a lot of surviving family members have photos. They have pictures, you know, static, still images, and you have his music. You have so much, uh, such a greater wealth. I wouldn't call it nostalgia, just memories, you know. It's an added dimension. It's a third dimension. You made another comment, which I loved, um, to this interview, he said, "If it's not the cure, it's a really good remedy." That's a great observation. That, you know, you obviously you can't, as you said, we we grieve forever. But that comment was pretty pretty profound. I loved it. Well, and it's it's I, I it was off the cuff, so I'm not sure where where it was from. But um, but to me, it's that's the way music is. You know, it it it's um, it's magic. It's. It's Indeed. also a great lyric, which I'm going to steal. Okay, <laughs> go for it. It's all yours. AJ, tell us about the name of the game. Uh, name of the game was a demo. It was a demo that was recorded in a, I think, in a Holiday Inn in 1973. It was after my father had um, already finished. Uh, I got a name, and um, and that was the second album he recorded that year. First one was Life and Times. Second one was I Got a Name, and and um, and so he was, you know, he was on a writing streak. He was, you know, on fire at the moment, right then. And, he, and so he, um, I have all these, you know, cassette tapes and and reel to reels of him um, writing new stuff. And and in the the case of that, it was something that was not completed, but I just thought it was really close. And I figured there would be a cool way to produce it. I wanted there to be the acoustic guitar element that would have been there. But I was also thinking about the time period and what um, the, you know, rock and roll influences would have been in the following year and in wanting to do something new. And I thought about Honestly, I thought about T-Rex. I thought about Elton John. I thought about all of these um, 
kind of early 70s glam artists and 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 the faces and i thought about how the instrumentation on it could blend together and still feel like it was it was a jim croce song um and so you know finished it the way the way it turned out you know i, I love the Wurlitzer and the acoustic guitar and that's vince gill on guitar right it is yeah vince well he's gill. no slouch no no <laughs> um vince gill um colin linden's also playing on it um colin linden takes the first solo and um or the first half of the solo and then vince gill takes the the, the second half and um and colin's playing um the guitar that that it was written on you know so that that was cool it's an old 30s uh gibson l o you have an amazing arsenal of producers and and co-musicians it's quite the laundry list i no i notice a lot of your covers album covers if i might just segue quickly into the to the art world a lot of your covers are personality covers a lot of images of you which, which is great it's what works in that genre and then suddenly out of nowhere so much fun has this great kind of almost victorian image on it was that a conscious sort of shift into something more conceptual no you know i think the conceptual i really didn't want to be on another album cover after after cantos which was around 2000 um five i think 2006 um and and so the one after that cage of muses was like a you know it was like a book cover the no photos of me and then um and then the next one um was a real concept that my late wife uh created for t um, uh 12 tales um and and that was more conceptual in in that it was there was elements of kind of a nouveau you know art nouveau style but also it was kind of uh hippie nouveau you know um and uh collage like even though a lot of it was painted or pen and ink and then um and then after that you know um i think the next one was um just like medicine um dan penn really thought he's like you have to you have to have your face on it all those old albums have you know your face on them. And so I thought of, of that being like, um, you know, like one of those kind of sixties soul albums and, um, the font and everything was done accordingly, you know, with the arrows and the, that kind of, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I, I believe me, um, it, the Kate with the, with, um, that particular single, it was, I wasn't in town. I needed, I needed ideas. I, I had an idea about it being like Mardi Gras influenced. And I looked at a bunch of old Mardi Gras posters from the thirties and forties and fifties up through the seventies and thought about what would be kind of cool. And that's how it turned out. Speaking of album covers, I mean, this is the 50th anniversary, right? Of you don't mess around with Jim. Yeah. It's, it's pretty iconic. That strange window thing or whatever it is. It's an outhouse. Okay. It's an outhouse in the house that my childhood home and turned into, I think it was like they, it was like a pigsty, you know, it's not very big, very small inside. It's an arched window. It's in an old farmhouse in Lindell, Pennsylvania, where I 
lived for a couple first couple years of my life. It's so strange that it's so small because when you see the original album cover, it feels like it's something that would be on like some castle or something. Exactly. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yet an outhouse. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, but it's, you know, it's kind of on the main line in, in Pennsylvania, which was at one point kind of a, a, I don't know if it is anymore, but it used to be a kind of foo-foo area where folks could live outside the city. It was kind of the first suburb in America, I think, um, back in the, uh, 1800s and people could take a train into the city and, and, but live in the country. And so there was a lot of that Pennsylvania Dutch design out there. Did, did that wall go through a considerable amount of decay? Cause the original cover seemed to have more of a plaster field around it. And in that interview where you were walking on your property, there seemed a very small relic left of that just that part looks pretty much the same and has um, ever since I can remember, like I, you know, every, however, if I'm back there visiting family in, in Philly or something, then, then I may stop out there. It just depends, but um, it's in, it's in disrepair. Um, the folks that own the property are trying to raise money to fix it, um, which I'm all for, but I think they, they're what they, um, are trying to raise is just exorbitant, like 65 grand to fix an outhouse. And I just couldn't believe that. I guess I, I would love to help make it happen, but also I just, I don't know where, how you make an outhouse cost that much. <laughs> no kidding. I think we could get it done for about a thousand bucks and some hard work. <laughs> get the right contractor on it. Come on a couple grand, surely. Yeah. Do it yourself. But you're doing some shows in celebration of the 50th anniversary too, yeah. I, I finished the, the last one um, about a week and a half ago here for this year. Next year is going to be a slightly altered version of it just because next year is the 50th uh, anniversary of, of the next two albums. So instead of having playing the whole album as I did with this, this year's 50th concerts, it's all multimedia. And as I played... Um, Every show was uniquely different. I play live. I haven't used in ears. We're not playing to a click track, and I'm and I need to have it timed in my head what, of what's going on behind me. So I learned along the way how to make it feel really smooth and work with all of the uh, multimedia because we're actually playing. Um, as you guys know, there's a lot of people out there that do the multimedia stuff. Probably 75, 80 percent of them aren't playing um, or or are playing to a track and um, this is all live and, and real. So there was a, there was a learning curve with it. And, and part of that I figured for the next year of 50th anniversary shows, which I'll be doing, I'm sure I'll um, play one in, in Indiana because you guys are too far away. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, the, the, I think the next, um, those are going to start up again next summer. And through the through the fall, and it'll be the all three albums celebrated multimedia, but the same ideas at Croce plays Croce. There'll be all you know all the big hits, a few of my favorite deep cuts, a few of my things, some of where the influences came from, and it'll all be tied together. I think it's going to be um, even more fun than these. You know, um, it really was emotional for me, but it was even, I think, more emotional for audiences. Um, those 
songs had never been performed with a band. My dad played as a duo uh, with Maury Muleisen. And um, if anyone saw him perform, it was just like that. Every once in a while, uh, there was a piano player that would come in after Leroy Brown, but he never played with a band. So hearing these songs for people performed, you know, I think by me, but with all of the images and multimedia stuff, it's very emotional um, for for fans of all different generations, you know. How many people on stage in your lineup for this show? This show is seven on stage, two background singers. David Berard also sings background and plays bass. Uh, Gary Malibur is on drums. Uh, Gary's, Gary and I've played together. He and, and David joined around the same time about seven years ago. Um, uh, and then on guitar, electric, acoustic, and uh, violin is uh, James Pennebaker. Um, and then... Um, Phil Hewley is playing electric and acoustic um, as a you know second fill-in guitar player, um, and I go between guitar and piano as well as you know I'll have a, have my roads there. The new roads, yeah. Whenever I can, it's wonderful. It's so cool, and I always love that Billy Preston Silver Sparkle Fender Roads, and I was looking for one, and they it cost almost twice as much now. And it's in disrepair, but if you get one of those sparkle top roads, they cost like 10, 12 grand. And it's like nearly twice the price of a new vintage vibe. That's perfect. And unique thing about the vintage vibe on the tone. And in tune, I would assume. Oh, in tune. The action is absolutely wonderful. Very much. The, the action is not as, as much of a, a, a battle as the original roads. Is that right? More balance. I love the original roads, but you know, I I'm a little bit young to have ever really dug into one of those when they were pristine and new. So I can only go by the ones in great studios where they've been maintained and and go. Okay, well, I guess this is what. But everyone I've ever played doesn't matter which studio or which venue. Everyone is different. Um, this is so wonderful because all the keys are just are are even all the actions even the regulations even it's great plus it has 220 so i can go to europe and just plug it in speaking of high maintenance instruments i love mellotrons love them and you know um i've never owned one um and i've thought about getting one of those new you know synth model ones because um I, I did some sessions was for EMI, it was for an art Dutch artist, and they needed um, some alternative kind of sounds. And I suggested that um, I wasn't producing, I was just playing keys on it. And I think um, I at the time I had sort of a standalone uh, a plug-in, this kind of a virtual instrument. Uh, for a Mellotron and it was really good. The thing, the thing about the real ones, again, you know, they're not in great shape. And then, um, and then when you do um, find one in good shape, they don't have all of the different tapes. They might have the, the horns or the flutes or the violin, but they won't have the vocals. There's so many cool ones, you know. Mike Pinder from the Moody Blues did a really decent sample he recorded both the 10-second tape that stops before the capstan releases the tape 
and it's not in tune, which they never were because he does that version, but he also does a tuned version where the tape is a loop and it continues. So you can go beyond the 10 seconds. It's a pretty decent, and he includes everything from boys choir to, to uh, even those, those like foxtrot samples. Have you heard those? Uh, oh yeah. I love it. A couple years back, maybe it's three and a half years ago, maybe more. Five years ago, I was went and got to play one of the mighty Wurlitzers. One of the like it's up near Seattle. Um, it's a private home had been built around this uh, Wurlitzer and maintained and repaired, and it was like it was the synthesizer of its day, you know. And being able to play this thing and have all of those kind of sound effects, and you know, you could have the 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 clopping horse, you know, horse hoofs and, and the, the old uh, car horns and all of the oddball special effects you would hear in a silent movie was so much fun. Um, kind of a similar experience for me is playing a, a, you know, a Mellotron or really anything like that. A pianette pianettes are, are pretty wild and, and, um, temperamental as well, but I just I, I prefer the analog instruments. I'm not really a synth player. I love organ, but I wouldn't consider myself an, an organ player. So, are you going to incorporate that Wurlitzer in an album of yours if you haven't already? Are you going to? Oh yeah, oh absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's the um, what's interesting on on that, and I don't mean to bore the audience with with, with stuff, but like. When the tone is turned all the way down, it sounds remarkably like a Wurlitzer. Um, and when the tone is turned up, you have, um, it sounds like the richest, most beautiful road. So it has this thing that makes it very versatile. Yeah, for, as far as that goes, I mean, I'll bring it with me as much as I can. Um, I generally try and travel as light as I can saying that with, you know, 10 of us going out, you know, I'm referring to the, the big boy that you were talking about. Oh yeah. The that Wurlitzer man. No, you'd have to, you'd have to come to me for that <laughs> or come to them. Yeah. The mighty Wurlitzer. Um, yeah, that was, um, that was amazing. Just being able to play one of those giant pipe organs like that. So tell us, it's so much fun. Is that is that the lead-off single for something that's a, a full project that may be out next year? You know, it, it could be. It it could be. It's it's hard to say. Um, certainly in keeping with some of the other stuff I've written. Um, although I have a handful of guitar songs that are that could potentially fit in that world too. Um, it really just. I think it really just depends. Um, I'll know in the next couple months. Um, and I plan on going in in, in uh, late April, early May to, to record an album. So, you know, the the, the producer I, I'm working with, I'd really like to have a, someone else. I've produced enough of my own stuff for a while. I think that it would be good to to have another set of ears there. And so, yeah, we, you know, we'll see. We'll see what, what sounds like fun. It's really a pleasure uh, talking to you and and, to, and and rediscovering and discovering for the first time a lot of what you do. It's a real joy. And it's not it's not always been easy. You know, I think I think when um, um, I think people think that because of of my my father, that it was it was easy. 
I think there were some doors that opened, but if you don't have the ability or if you don't have the same vision that the person behind that door has, then it doesn't really help much. And, um, and, and this business as you all know, is like a roller coaster ride. You know, you think everything's, I've made the mistake of having things go, you know, wonderfully and you buy a new car and, you know, or you fix the house up or you do something and you're like, the next year, everything changes and you're like, oh my God, what did I do? You know? What do you mean? I can't relate. I mean, after I, COVID, it's like, what, I what do you mean? I will never make that mistake again, you know? Um, live and learn. I'm just going to go back and listen to your earlier records now. Well, me and the bar kind of, I think me and the bar held up pretty well. Um, um, that's something I did with, with Keltner producing. And, and, um, and then, and Ry Cooter plays a lot on that album. There's some great, and Wadi Wachtel, that's a really, uh, David Hidalgo came in and played. It was, it's, that's a really fun, um, interesting album. It was the hardest album I ever made. It was really difficult. Some, some really terrible guys on that record. I mean, you could have got, you could have got some better guys for it. For sure. I know, I know. <laughs> it was funny. Um, uh, Keltner, I think, um, on purpose had a couple of slide, you know, slide parts recorded on songs that weren't, weren't quite right. Or that he knew that, that Ry Cooter wouldn't dig. And he brought them to him and he's like, Hey, Ry, what do you think? And at the time Ry hadn't played in like a month, you know, hadn't picked up a guitar in a month. And he's like, he's like, I'm coming in tomorrow. And I'm going to fix this. <laughs> I think it was on purpose because they're great friends. And, he knew that if he heard something and it wasn't it wasn't up to his expectations that he would that he would uh, he would come in and fix it. Um, but yeah, that one's good. There's stuff on the um, Adrian James Croce album I'm, I'm proud of, uh, and and that was a more you know '60s influenced pop record in the in the way of like Nielsen or the Beatles or that kind of the Kinks were a big influence at that time. Um, all you know, all kind of stuff. So, what are you going to play us out with? We Thanks a lot for your time. Come on. Yeah, man.